0: This evening, turn your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse... I want to begin in verse 9. We're going to look at verses 13 through 16, but I want to do a little bit of review um, with a different emphasis this evening. And then we'll look at verses 13 through 16 in particular. So listen, follow along as I read in your copy of God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Verse 9 through 16, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil, but if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people. All of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely also this is vanity and a striving after the wind. Thus far, God's word, as it is read, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, come to us tonight and help us to sense, to know, and to be aware that you are not only the author of this glorious word given to us, but even tonight make it fresh in our hearts and our minds that we might have every confidence that this is it and that your glory and the striving for the lifting up of your name is the best kind of life. Help us to be a people then devoted to your glory In the furthering of your kingdom, we ask all this in your name. Amen. As we look at much of what Solomon has to say in the book of Ecclesiastes, what he is essentially saying is that things are the way things are because God has made them thus and because your sin has made them thus. There are two realities that afflict and affect all of our lives, and that is, number one, we are made by God. We are made for God, but despite this glorious beginning, we live in a world touched by sin, and so Solomon refers to this cursed life as life under the sun. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, We are afflicted by the same stain, the same curse, but there is great joy, there's great glory, there's great purpose to be found, but it cannot be found in the stuff of earth, so stop looking. At the same time, it's okay to enjoy the stuff of earth, but to enjoy it for the reason and for the purpose and the end to which it has been given. You can grow your grapes, you can tread them, you can ferment them, You can enjoy the fruit of the vine, but you need to understand that that bottle of Cabernet may take away the pain for an evening, but it will not take away pain for a lifetime. And that we ought not to seek in the stuff of earth to solve the problem that only Christ himself can solve. And that we are better off to live in such a fashion that has been designed and ordained by God. And much of what you find now, especially among the young, and that is the way it's always been, this is not a criticism of you young people in particular, but all of the young, is that they try to establish a life in which their rebellious choices are in fact the norm and not a departure from the norm, or the norm or the righteous instead of a departure from the righteous. The prodigal son sought to do this, didn't he? He took his father's fortune and he said, I am going to make a name for myself. And, of course, he succeeded for a time until he spent all his money. And then he ended up eating what pigs eat. I won't elaborate any further, but it's not good. It makes McDonald's chicken nuggets look like gourmet. (laughs) We are to live as we have been designed, as we are called. And so what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If you reject that calling, you will find your life to be a complete and utter waste. This evening, I want us to look at this first section, work, warmth, and war, and how we are designed for all of those things in a particular fashion and how it's connected to the second part of this text, wisdom, Poverty and what I call teachability, which I think is a word I may have made up, though I'm not the first one to make that word up. It sounds like a word, and that's all that matters sometimes. Pastors and country musicians have the same opportunity, and that's to invent words on the fly. Let's look at the first point point this evening work, warmth, and war. Work, warmth, and war. I'm having trouble getting that out of my mouth, apparently. What we need to understand is, as I said two weeks ago, it's better to be together. We were made to be together. And one of the ways in which we established understanding that it is better to be together is that God taught Adam this lesson early on in his life. God made Adam, he put him in the garden, and he put him in the garden in order to work the garden, that it might be organized for the purpose of expanding the garden to the other utter reaches of the earth. Now, this was a job that was bigger than what one man could do. God knew this. Adam didn't until he did. He learned it from his labors. And in his labors, as he addressed the animals and named them and organized them and said, you will be a cow. But he didn't call anything a cow. I don't know what he called it, but it was a cow. It was this hefty animal that walked around on fours and in some fashion, what Adam was doing was science. We talk about science all the time in our culture today. Science is this shining beacon of hope that we all must pay homage to. This is what Adam was doing. He was doing science, classification, kingdom, order, however, I can't ever remember how that order goes. He was naming. And he was doing it because God commanded it. And as he walked around and he named all these animals, he saw that there was no one else like him. He learned that from his labors. God allowed Adam to learn that, and so God made a partner, not just a partner in tending to the garden, but a a partner that would work with Adam to not just take dominion over creation, but fill creation through procreation. He gave to Adam a perfect complement, and Adam, when he saw that perfect complement, recognized her for who she was. And he said, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, a like person. Well, the only other person. (laughs) And in that moment, we find a, well, this is Adam, and this is, well, it's actually man. This is woman. And he invites the woman to come to the man, and, and, and then they're married, husband and wife, the beginning of all creation. And from those two come all mankind. Now, there is a certain arrogance in sinful man, modern man. And when I say modern man, every man who is alive speaks of modern man in the same way. The men who are sort of pushing philosophy and ideology and the ideas, these modern men say, you know what? I don't need anyone else, just myself. I can succeed on my own. And so Solomon, as he's writing about those who endeavor to live in such a way, either purposefully alone or the choices they make alienate them from one another, he is saying that if you are alone, you cannot enjoy in the same fashion and war in the same effect or work with the same fruit If you do it alone, you have no one to enjoy it with. And sometimes that being alone is by choice. And sometimes you're just prickly. You're just prickly. I saw a picture of a a little rodent the other day that got a little too close to a porcupine. And I thought, well, did that rodent not understand? Was it attacking the porcupine or did it just want to hug? And he realized, oh, I'm hugging the wrong animal. There are times where we are alone by choice and then there are times where we are alone because, well, nobody wants to be around us. We don't know how to be in the company of other people. Recluses or Scrooges, some examples come to mind. But what we need to understand is this. This is not the way it ought to be. In order to live well or better under the sun, it is better to do it together. And the reasons are, Warmth, work, and war. Two is better than one, and then here at the end of this little section, verse 12, three is really strong. What about a church of 60? In light of the teaching of Solomon, that's strong. How many do you need? Well, you need more than one. So that if you're fighting, you have someone to back you up, if you're working and you fall down, someone can continue to work, and when you're resting, you have someone to lie down with. But man, in our sin, runs another way. We distort the principle of lying down for war, warmth, going to war, laboring all of these things, and we say, you know what? God doesn't know best. I know best. And so we seek to fashion a life for ourselves that makes sense and justifies our bad choices. But this is not the way. It will not work. It results in a breakdown. It results in loneliness. It results in a stoppage of labor. It results in being conquered by two people who actually did have the common sense to team up together against you. Rebellion against God is not only treason against a list of rules and regulations, it is treason against the very way life works. And we quickly, at times, run against that. Sinful rebellion is a rejection of what God calls best. Now, many people make an entire life that is filled with an exercise of running, suppressing, and exchanging the truth of God for lies. We see this a lot today. That within the Western world, this modern world, we speak of identity, meaning, calling, being, purpose, as being fluid. You've heard this? Your truth. Not my truth. Your truth. And your truth is the truth that all other truths are interpreted by. It sounds chaotic. It's even hard to formulate properly. But what men have always done and continue to seek to do is to reinvent for themselves a way that removes credit from God, the glorious designer, and places it upon themselves or an approved other. It is a systematized, at times, sometimes it's individualized, but a systematized rejection of the principles of God's rule and reign in life. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon is saying, let's reorient your understanding, your perspective, so that you can understand these incredibly important principles. Number one, you live in the earth, in the world that God has made. You live under the sun. You live under the sun. He lives above the sun. You live under the sun. And your life, by contrast to his life, is very, very, very short and insignificant in a sense. And so what we need to do is we need to push back against the lies that we have always been told and are even being told today. Solomon would call the readers, those who endeavor to be taught, to come to their senses. You have to wake up and see that things are the way they are by God's design and also by the distortion of sin that wreaks havoc upon the world. And that maturity, or you might say Christian maturity, is learning to function successfully, joyfully, Christ exaltingly in a world that is constantly pushing against or seeking to draw you away from your God-given chief end to glorify and enjoy him. To switch sides, to move away from, to rebel against God's calling. And so Solomon here calls things better. It's better this way. Now, oftentimes when you're young, what is your initial response to? It's better if you do it this way. Parents, have you ever had this experience? Children, have you ever had this experience? Your mom or your dad says, here's what you need to do, and this is the way you ought to do it. And you're principled, and you're principled in this way. Because they told me to do it this way, I'm going to do it another way. Did you not realize your parents were also testing you, and you failed that test? And what is that test? It is the test of listening to the voice of wisdom. And so the job gets done, but the parent goes, Did you listen? And every inclination in the heart of a son and daughter of Adam is what? When you hear thou shalt." Well, did God really say that? No, I think I'll try it this way. And lo and behold, you act outside of the design of God and, well, sometimes there's temporary judgment, sometimes there isn't. In fact, it's actually a blessing to receive temporary judgment. I'm not talking about lightning from heaven, in case you're wondering. (laughs) Because I've never seen that happen, though I've prayed for it. Against others, not necessarily myself. But there are certain inalienable laws. I want to be a bird. Well, God didn't make you a bird. Don't jump off a house. (laughs) I wanna be a boy. Well, God didn't make you a boy. He made you a girl. These are the rules that our culture says if you name yourself something, it's true. Well, I'm president. So, you know what? I'm king. So, all of you from this point on, you bow down and pay homage to me. And what does everyone else say? I was king before you. <laughs> long before you. In fact, this is the problem with kings, and that is what Solomon talks about next. Let's look at verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. It sounds like the beginning of a moral tale. In fact, there are many moral tales here in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it leads me to my second point, wisdom, poverty, and teachability. And here, again, Solomon says something is better. Two is better than one, and even three is strong. And so commit yourself to fellowship with others so that you might better delight, more faithfully work, and protect yourself against the things that are in this world under the sun. But there's also something better. A poor, wise youth is better than an old and foolish king whose folly is defined by no longer taking advice. And so what do we see Solomon doing again? Setting a contrast. Two is better than one. Poverty and wisdom is better than folly and power. In fact, it's poverty, wisdom, and youth versus what? Wealth, folly, and age. Solomon's saying there is something better in this world than you might initially think. I mean, who wouldn't want to be, maybe not an old king, but a rich king or a wealthy queen? You don't get to be a queen or a king and not end up with some wealth and power, right? That's what a king and a queen are. They are the highest position of authority in the land. Wouldn't that be great? It would be great, except there are some serious downsides to such a position, and those downsides are listed here. In fact, it's a very specific description of this old king. He doesn't listen. What is interesting is the beginning of this king. He was not always an old, foolish, hard-hearted king. Before he was king, look at what he was. Uh, He was, verse 14, he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I mean, this sounds like the all-American, aside from the king part, rags-to-riches story. It's the story of a a boy born in, in slavery, in imprisonment, and he worked his way all the way to the throne of some nation, some hypothetical kingdom. And despite all of the challenges that he had to work through, and he got to the throne, that after a time, all of that poverty All of that hard experience, he lost it. And he stopped listening. Which says what about wealth and power? Have y'all gotten in your cars in the past few days and ice? And you gotta turn the I call it the defog. What do you call it? (laughs) For Ten minutes just to get it melted and get the windshield in a place where you can see. Wealth and wisdom fog the glass. They prevent true sight. Remember what Christ said to that rich young ruler who sought to pledge himself to Christ except if it meant giving up his wealth. And so Christ turns to the disciples and says, "Uh, Listen. Surely, I tell you this, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? For the same reason, kings turn foolish. They don't listen. It's better to be poor and have your ears open and to be young, to be sensitive And humble and teachable. It is better to be poor and wise than rich and powerful and foolish. Now, we live in an age where folly is actually rewarded with TV contracts. If you do something stupid enough, someone will come and film you and they will make you into a TV celebrity. That's called reality television. The Kardashians have built an empire on being idiots on television. Selfish, the most vile, the most privileged and disgusting of human beings live on the E! Network. And we watch it and go, I just want to have what they have, because if I have what they have, I wouldn't do what they did, says the prison boy, until he becomes king. Now, you may say, well, that sounds bleak. And I say to you, welcome to the real world. In fact, it wasn't just the king that's in verse 13 and 14. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to what? One day become that king. And all of a sudden you think, okay, maybe I don't want to become a king. (laughs) The, what do they say, heavy sits the crown, heavy hangs the crown. That kind of power, that kind of wealth, and that kind of, and I hate to use the word privilege, even though it's a fitting word, it's been so abused and distorted today. That kind of advantageous position so often leads to inner ear trouble. The calloused ear, what? Are not just I can't hear you. It's I don't want to listen. This is why sometimes the hardest people to pastor in the church are pastors, and the the people who need the best counseling in families are parents. It's the people with the power and the authority who do all the commanding and very little of the receiving of the commands. Which is why every single one of us needs a shepherd. Someone who will come into our lives and will remind us. You know what a court jester is? You know why court jesters functioned? It wasn't to make the king laugh. It was to make fun of the king. They were employed by the court in order to remind the king, oh, by the way, you're just a man. It's interesting now in our culture how all of the comedians who criticize those in power are being, you know why? Because people who take their own authority so seriously cannot have those kinds of voices. It's interesting but it's not unique. In fact, I guess it's great when you're a court jester and you're appreciated, but they're usually the first people to have their heads taken off, right? If they're not wanted. It's a dangerous job. And the reason is this. With wealth, with power, and yes, even with age, or let's just call it success, comes this earworm of an idea. I did it. What? I did it myself. I don't need to hear what you have to say. Don't tell me. In fact, maybe there's a little bit of information, a little bit of biographical information here on the part of Solomon, which is interesting because when Solomon was king of Israel, one of the most powerful men that lived in the world at the time, and God came to him and asked him, what do you want? Remember what Solomon said? Wisdom. But even wisdom could not save Solomon for a time. Solomon was enamored with the gifts of power. And with his many wives and many concubines and all the treasures of earth, guess what happened to his ears over time? They grew less and less receptive of the word of God. It almost, well, it doesn't almost, it really kind of coincides with what, with what I was talking about this morning. Repentance, repentance is the only righteous response to the voice of God saying to you, you're doing it wrong. Show me how to do it right. Show me how to do it right. I don't know how many times I've said that in my life. Far less than I've said, I know what I'm doing. Or a favorite Jimmy's doing it that way, or I got this. I don't need your help. This is the disposition of this foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Now, what's ironic is this. The world thinks that poverty is the path to wisdom, right? There's often this strange, mysterious relationship with the, the poverty-stricken monk who's wise. He sees things as the real are because he's given up worldly treasure. Do you know what monks thought about after they gave up worldly treasure? The same kinds of people, things that people who have worldly treasure think about. They think about the stuff of earth. They think about things. They think about possessions. They think about the establishing of a, of a kingdom. And maybe it's not a lot. It's just a little, but it's yours. Poverty and wisdom are not kissing cousins. You can be poor and you can be a fool. You can be rich and you can be a fool. In fact, all men before God in terms of wealth, wisdom, and power are all paupers. We all come begging to the gate and we say, Could you spare us something? But when you come to a point in your life where you no longer ask God for those things, it reveals what? That you no longer know how to take advice. Wisdom is the wealth. Wisdom is the wealth. That's what makes the youth different from the king. It isn't age. It isn't wealth. That is money. It's to see that wisdom, which is a disposition of humility and teachability before God, that's, that's the wealth. Samuel was wise even in his young years. And Eli taught him. He taught something to Samuel he would not and could not teach to his own boys. What did Eli teach Samuel. The next time God comes to you and says, Samuel, what do you say? Speak, for your servant is listening. And you know, Samuel remained faithful. But the heart of that soft young boy can be so easily distorted and corrupted by sin. And by the time you're an old, powerful, wealthy man, you've stopped learning how to say, Speak, for your servant is listening. And of course, the other great example of that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, John chapter 17, where Jesus is pleading before the Father, and in his humanity he is saying, Can we do this another way? This is going to be terrible. And yet Christ confesses to his Father, Yet at the end of all of this, not my will, but your will be done. Christ didn't need advice, but what goes hand in hand with the ability to listen is a surrendering of your will to the Lord, and that is what Solomon says is the great treasure that lasts because your kingly wealth doesn't. Verse 16, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Why? Because he's nothing. He's nothing. We don't even know where his tombstone is. He's a fake guy, right? He's every guy. He's hypothetical, but he could be any one of us. I mean, how many of you have learned the names of the presidents of this country? Did that change your life? Did it because I never did, and I, I'm a little jealous if it did change your life because I was never made to learn the names of the presidents. And sometimes I wonder why do we need to learn the names of the presidents? Maybe for this reason none of them are really that great. And there's some that will come later. How many rulers of earth came before George Washington? I don't know their names. You know the French kings, the English kings, the German kings, the Russian kings, the czars as they call them, the pharaohs, the emperors of China? I don't know any of their names. And if I did know their names, it wouldn't change my life one bit except to know this. They're all the same. They're all the same. They went from not being king to being king. And all of this swirling and whirling that goes on under the sun, all goes on under the careful watch of Christ, who is king of heaven and earth. And it is his name that we need to know. It is at the name of Christ that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so whether you're high or low, rich or poor, whatever your race, sex, status, there is nothing so valuable as wisdom. It is the highest form of capital on earth. And do you know what? You can mine it at any time, anywhere. And Christ says, you can't ask for it in such a way that you will ask beyond what I can give. That's pretty amazing. There are computers that people build just to mine Bitcoin. I I guess they still do that. I don't know. I never got into it. But you can mind the richness of the mind of God and what he promises you is a wealth that will not leave you an old foolish king but an old wise man or woman. (laughs) As the scriptures say, those who are old that still bear green leaves who are still alive. Now, People may not rejoice in you. In fact, the promise isn't that if you seek after Christ, people will remember you. They will. not They just won't. I don't know who my great, great, great grandparents are. I have no idea who they are. They could have been kings, and I would never know. So what are we to do? Do not invest in that which cannot last, that which is not really wealth, and do not let the things that this world calls wealth enchant you away from what Christ says is wealth rather seek the choicest of all fruits wisdom and righteousness that come from the Holy Spirit who admonishes and in that admonishment gives priceless treasures now the reason I say admonish is this because you are not yet what you will one day be Christ is by his Holy Spirit going to come to the door (laughs) of your heart and say I have something for you. It's instruction. And you're going to say, I don't want it. You may turn him away. We know what happens from the book of Revelation to those who do. But may we not be so foolish that we no longer know how to take advice? From whom? From Christ through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.